You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I just really love my kids. Like I just, I really, really love my kids. And I don't just mean like because they're my kids, I love them. I mean them as people are people that I really love. Like they are the kind of people that I like to hang around with. Um, they, both India at eight years old now and Judah at five are the kinds of people I like to be around. And I can imagine in 20 years' time, I will just enjoy hanging out with them. I, just, I have visions of just hanging out with them um, because I like them. <laughs> They're my kind of people. And uh, I would say that because I help create them, I guess. But they're just, I just I enjoy them. And part, part of the reason I enjoy them is because they're not normal. All right? I don't know what normal is, but my kids aren't that. And they're, just, they're, they're quite um, different and um, a little bit eccentric. And um, I was thinking about it this last week. That one of the main ways that this is sort of expressed is both of them have this very creative streak, a very artistic streak. Um, India is more like just scattergun, impressionist kind of artwork. Judah is very precise and very perfectionistic. And the only time I ever really hear him lose his mind is when he's gone outside of the line on one of his colouring in pictures. Or when that doesn't actually look like an actual platypus. So they're, so they're both they're different but similar in their creativity. India expresses this through her dress. So she's forced to wear uniform during the week, but anything outside of that, right? She's got uniform at school, uniform at karate, and then she does what she likes with her clothes, especially when it's daddy day. If it's daddy day, she knows she can empty the cupboards. In, uh, Renee's a little bit more, a little bit more um, prescriptive. Um, India said to me just yesterday, I love Daddy Day because I, it means I can do anything I want, which isn't exactly right, but when it comes to dress, it kind of is, and she will come up with the most uh, eccentric combinations of things. I was remembering this morning an example of this. A couple of years ago, they had footy colours day at school, and so she got dressed up, and it was, a, again, this erratic combination of, I don't know, ballet, skirt, and whatever. But the colours were black, white and red. And I went to her and said, I was like, has, has India discovered St Kilda for herself? Because nobody has told her to barrack for St Kilda. And she was like, no, no, no. It's black and white because mummy supports Collingwood. Again, I don't know how she knew that because I don't know if Renee knows she supports Collingwood. She, I, no word of a lie, a couple of years ago, she said her favourite current player of Collingwood was Nathan Buckley. So, <laughs> so black and white, but then she said, and the red and black is because you support Essendon. And then she said, and the red is also because of Liverpool. And, I, and so I stopped and said, I just said to her, you cannot do this. This is against the rules. Like the, the rules of nature I mean you can't combine Collingwood and Essendon. That's, like, that's against the law. That's blasphemous to do that. And then Liverpool, Liverpool is English Premier League. That's a whole different game. That's a whole different country. Those three things can't go together. Why am I telling you this? Because 
you might come to the end of today having heard me go through my three points and your response might be the same, these three things don't go together. I think those of us who have been around church for a while kind of intuitively believe that these three things that I'm going to try and put together don't go together. But I believe that these three things I'm going to talk about are three characteristics, three flavours, three, three segments of the biblical church that I think God wants us to be. And so whether the world and whether the church thinks they need to go together or can go together, then like India, I want to say they're going together. And it's beautiful when they do. So again, as with last week, we're going to jump around a little bit in 1 Corinthians, but it's all going to be in 1 Corinthians to try and keep the context for these three chapters that we're going to look at in the coming eight weeks, chapters 12 to 14. So if you've got a Bible, just be ready and willing to jump around a little bit in this book. Otherwise, it's going to be on the screen. So just, just relax. You can just look that way. But first of all, these three things I want to talk about, these, these three aspects of who we are as a church... Number one, reformed. Number two, sacramental. Number three, charismatic. All of those terms are quite technical. They're quite theological. They might be quite abstract. And so I've done an alliterated, less technical version of it for you. Okay, so here we go. Scripture, sacrament, spirit. That's what we're talking about. These are the three things that I think if you read the Scriptures and if you deeply try to understand the church in the scriptures and of the scriptures, then you'll be able to see what I think God is calling us to as a church, which is to hold these three things together. These three things, which so often in our experience don't go together, actually do, in fact, and must go together in our experience as a church. So I just want to cycle through these three things. I want to look at sort of what what it is that they mean how they sort of manifest themselves in the Corinthian church and also what are kind of the dangers with respect to these three things that we need to try and avoid. What are those reefs that we need to sail around as we pursue God's will for us as a church? So first of all, Scripture or Reformed. Normally when people hear that, if you've heard it at all before, you think, oh, that's the predestination one. That's the theology where they believe that God has decided everything ahead of time. And you heard Jimmy probably a couple of weeks ago preaching on Ephesians chapter 1. And that's a big reformed chapter. They've put their reformed flag in the ground in that chapter. And that's that's what what reformed people are all about. God is sovereign over all things, including salvation, and has predetermined everything that will ever happen and all of that stuff. But I want to say... To be reformed is not really about that. Yes, it's true that reformed theology has a high view of God's sovereignty. Reformed theology believes that without God, we have no hope of ever coming to God and being reconciled to him. That we require God's initiative and his agency to save us from our sins. We don't believe that God throws us a life vest and then we put it on ourselves. We believe God reaches down and pulls us out of the grave all of that's true. But to understand what it means to be reformed in this sense is, is, requires you to go back in history to the, to the probably 15th, 16th, even 17th century where you had this movement in the church, the Reformation movement, one of the most powerful movements in human history. 
in the church or outside of it. And the context that gave rise to this, and it didn't happen all in a day, it happened over a series of many, many years through many, many different people, but the context that preceded it was the fact that the church had lost its way. Where the church once held scripture as the ultimate authority over us as believers, the church had subsumed that authority, had put away the Bible, had locked it up in Latin, the language of the priests, language that was inaccessible to normal Christian people, and had instead posited itself as the authority. Now, whereas Jesus was on the throne and his word was our writ, it now had the Pope on the throne and the church as the authority. They had lost their way. They had gone from believing that salvation came to us by grace through faith and started to believe that they could earn their way into God's good graces, come to Mass, give regularly. You can even buy the salvation of your friends and family, even those who already died through indulgences. All of this had happened and it had destroyed the very foundation of a gospel understanding of what church is. And then into this milieu, these men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and others came along and their biggest gift to us was their rediscovery of the scriptures. That's what it is to be reformed. It is to to take all those things and put them aside and go back to the word. Go back to the scriptures as our final authority. You want to know anything about what God is like, about what he does, about who you are, you go to the scriptures. That was their great rediscovery. That was the spark that changed human history. And these things that they discovered have sort of been been, um, encapsulated in, in what are called the solas. And so... I've got them written out for you here. Here's here's what it means to be reformed. When it comes to our primary, primary authority, we believe sola scriptura. That means scripture alone is our primary authority. Our primary authority is not in the guy up the front with the microphone, not in the guy up the front wearing the robes, right? Not in my inner sense of things, my impressions, right? following my heart, none of these things is my primary authority. Scripture alone is our primary authority. The basis of our salvation is sola gratia, that is grace alone. Salvation comes to us in an unmerited way, completely and utterly unmerited. You haven't done anything to deserve this. It's grace, it's gift. And the means by which it comes to you is sola fide, by faith Alone. The merit of salvation, that is, who has earned this salvation, not I, but Solus Christus, Christ alone, has merited my salvation. I contribute nothing to it, and then in everything, in all of life, soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. That those things characterize the Reformed faith. And others will go on and say, well, to be capital R Reformed, you've got to believe these doctrines and sign up to these confessions. I'm not going to bother with any of that. I'm just saying the spirit of the Reformation is among us. And that drives us back to the Word of God, just as it did to those men in those days. It drives us back to Scripture. We see this 
again in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, and we'll go back over and over this because it's a key passage. In, in, in chapter 15, Paul says, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you were being saved. Right? This is the most important thing, he says, the gospel. As it was for the reformers, and so it is for us today. The gospel, the message by which these people in that day, as well as us today, that message by which we are being saved unless we believed in vain. He passed on to them and passes on to us, verse 3, that which is most important. What he also received from Jesus, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We're driven back over and over again to the Scriptures. That's what it means to be reformed. What's the danger in this? If this is something we're going to all sign up to, and by the way, as I'm going through these three things, I'm not assuming that you're all signing up to all of them. I'm not under any illusions. But here's what I think, where I think God is, is leading us and, and is wanting us to, to more and more own for ourselves. What's the danger In my experience, the danger of becoming more and more reformed is that you more and more prize this knowledge, this knowledge of what the gospel really is and what true doctrine really is and what the scriptures really say. You prize that above everything else. And the effect that it has and has had on me is to puff us up. It puffs us up rather than sends us out in order to serve others. And again, in the Corinthian church, this was going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And again, great, this is great. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. That's brilliant. That is, I mean, that is, for a guy like me, that is such a precious corrective. I remember being at Bible college and having no idea what the Reformation was, what Reformed theology was. I had no, I remember the first day of Bible college sitting down opposite this old guy who I later found out was the principal and just saying to him, I don't think I should be here. Like everyone here knows the Bible. I don't even, I don't know the Bible at all. I've got no idea what I'm doing here. And praise God, he said to me, I think this is is exactly where you should be. And then he took me under his wing and to this day is a, a mentor of mine. But I remember going into his office a couple of years in, having received all this knowledge and having been exceedingly puffed up by it, I went into his office and I just said, you know, it's just so frustrating, you know, like how normal people don't know this stuff. Like all this reformed theology, they're just so dumb, they don't get it. And even when you tell them, they're just like, they don't get it. And Peter just said to me, you know, six months ago, you didn't know any of this either. And then he said to me, remember, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he said, 
anything you know about God at all is a gift to you of God's grace. And it just, it knocked some of the swagger out of me. Not all of it, as you know. The antidote to the danger of being puffed up by this knowledge of all of the reformed doctrines that we know and love, the antidote is to remember that everything we have, even the knowledge that we have of God, comes to us by God's grace. Paul says it himself in chapter 15, verse 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. At every turn, everything I have is a gift of God's grace. And so I can claim none of it for my own. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. So that's the first thing. That's, that's reformed or, or scripture. The second thing. The second thing I want to talk about is this idea of being a, a sacramental church or, or focusing on sacraments and um, this, this kind of value, I guess, it's a, it's a value, something that we hold dear, something that we want to pursue. There's kind of two elements to it, I guess. There's, there's the idea that we value the sacraments in Protestant churches. I know in, in other church backgrounds you might have multiple sacraments. In, in the Protestant church, we have two. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so to be sacramental in this sense is to prize and to value and to pursue the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It also means, though, and I, I want to broaden the meaning beyond just those two things themselves, it also means that we desire and we value a kind of liturgical connection with the church universal and historical. So we don't see ourselves out on a limb in the 21st century, paving our own way, blazing a new trail. We see ourselves connected to the Catholic Church. We've changed that in our creed to the universal church. That's because it's a confusing word and Catholic just means universal. Universal meaning all of the globe, global Christianity, and all of time, the last 2,000 years. So we see ourselves connected to that Catholicity of the church. And we express that through some things that are 2,000 years old, like the, saying the creed that Christians have always affirmed, and it connects us to some things that are 500 years old, like our Anglican liturgy, some of which you spoke this morning. And we believe this is important in a world where we prize individualism and we prize innovation. So you've walked in here this morning biased towards things that are new, things that are better, and in our minds, those two things are the same thing. If it's new, it's better. Because we're going to say, no, hang on a second. There are some things that are old that are precious. There are some things that are ancient that we don't want to do away with. And so we're connected not only to the sacrament itself, but to a way of understanding and elucidating or, or participating in those, those sacraments. So let me just talk about those two things a little bit. When it comes to sacraments, the best way to understand what a sacrament is, because that word can be confusing, is to understand that these things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are outward expressions of an inward reality. 
outward expression, something you do with your body. You're dunked underwater. You eat bread and wine. You do these things as an outward public expression of something that is inward and real. That's why we invite people to be baptized and to the Lord's Supper if they are already Christians. Otherwise, they would be giving an outward expression to something that's not inwardly real. So outward expression, inward reality. In baptism, we love to plunge people right down under the water because baptism is an outward expression which says, I have been, I've died, been buried, and I've been raised again. In baptism, we identify with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Death under the water, burial under the water, raised up again to new life. There are other metaphors which the Bible employs, like being washed and cleansed and reborn. That's what it is to, to, to enjoy and pursue and value the sacrament of baptism. The Lord's Supper, again, is this outward, reality, uh, outward expression of an inward reality. I love the, it's kind of a little bit old school, but again, we kind of like the old school, right? When it comes to the Anglican liturgy, it says about the bread at communion, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ... This is very complex theology, all right? The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Now, that's a sermon in itself. The point is that when we do that, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. We feed on him in our hearts, by faith, and with thanksgiving. The word Eucharist, which some people use for the communion, just means thanksgiving. So sacraments themselves, and then you've got the, the liturgy, which is just the form that these things take in the service. It's just the form they take. And here's the thing. I know some of you have come from Churches that wouldn't see themselves as liturgical. Here's the truth. Every church has a liturgy. I mean, all of them. Whether you say the prayers and stand and kneel and sit, or and whether there's candles and robes or anything else, every church has a liturgy. I remember for college, I had to go and do uh, a project where I attended a different church for a few weeks, and then I had to write like uh, a kind of essay on what the church was like and what the church service told me about what they value as a church. And I remember speaking to one of the pastors. I chose to go to this huge, big Pente church because I hadn't had much experience with Pentecostal churches and I was intrigued by them and I really, really enjoyed going there. I just felt so encouraged. And, but I got to speak with one of the pastors afterwards and I mentioned to him, here's what I think I'm going to write about your liturgy. And he was really quick. He was like, uh, uh, uh we don't have a liturgy. We don't do, and his words were, we're not religious like that. And my response to him was, like looking at my notes, I've been here three weeks, and you have said the same thing in the introduction, as you've said every other week. You've said the same thing before the offering, as you've said before the offering in every other week. And there was like a few things, that, were, and I said, that's your liturgy, right? Like, just because it's not, said in oldie-worldie language or it's up on the screen or it's in a book. Like, that's your liturgy. And so we shouldn't be afraid of this idea that we have a liturgy. Every church has a liturgy. The, the 
the danger that he identified and that we all know is that that liturgy can become dead formalism. It can become that thing that you say because you say it every week. And having grown up in a liturgical church, I can to this day say the prayers and things that we said when I was a little kid, even though I haven't really said them for many, many years. They've just become embedded. They're part that I learned them by rote, right? And so the danger is dead formalism. We all say these things. And, and listen... I think the Anglican liturgy is the most beautiful liturgy in the world. I think no one will ever come up with more beautiful language for a church service than what Thomas Cramer came up with 500 years ago. It's just beautiful. But you can come along and say those beautiful words over and over again and it has absolutely zero impact on you. And as Duke said at the beginning of the service, because it's not worship in spirit, it's not acceptable to God. It's worthless. So there's the danger that it just becomes something that we do because it's something that we have always done. The product of that is that we just zombie walk through church services not taking time to deeply appreciate these things that we're saying and participating in. I think this is what led to the great Corinthian controversy around the Lord's Supper, their great sacramental catastrophe. Remember in in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about this. So 27 and 28, he says um, on on the next slide, uh, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. In their case, some people were getting drunk, some people had nothing to drink. Some people drank all the wine at communion. The others had nothing. Some stuffed themselves full of bread. Other people went hungry. He says, anyone who drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. And he goes on to say, that sin has led some of you to be sick and some of you are dead. So, We're not talking about small bickies here, right? We're talking about cosmic consequences for zombie walking through a church service. He says, let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. And so just like the reform movement brought us back to the scriptures as a way of overcoming all of these abuses of the church. So Paul takes these Christians in Corinth back to the Scriptures. He says, I know you, I've already told you this, but I'm going to take you back to it. He says in verse 23 to 26, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. Do you see that? He's already told them. Well, don't tell them that again. It'll become too familiar. And No, it's like, no, you need, some things bear repeating. Some things are important to go back to. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Underline me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. This sacrament is all about him. And as soon as we make it about us, our preferences or our traditions or our words, we're on the path to destruction. Maybe sickness, maybe death. So he says, take some time to go back to what this is really about. Examine yourselves and then you can eat worthily. You can drink worthily. So it's this desire of and value of the sacraments as well as the kind of liturgy that draws us back into something beyond ourselves, something historically grounded and beautiful. Scripture, sacrament, reformed, sacramental. Last one, number three, charismatic. Ooh, charismatic. Spirit. I knew I could get through those first two with most of, most of you nodding along. Some of you just got a little scared. This is our foray into the, the rest of this series, my friends. The rest of this series is going to be about what it means for us to exercise a charismatic ministry. I've got a little quote for you from the series guide that you can pick up on your way out. As charismatics, a little definition. As charismatics, we believe that all spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament continue today and are given by the Spirit according to His will. Now, some of you are unaware of any controversy around that statement, but it is quite controversial. And I'm going to leave the controversy aside for next week. Coming into next week, we'll look at this great debate between continuationists, another word for charismatic, continuationists, they believe in the continuation of all of the gifts of the Spirit, and those who call themselves cessationists, no, those particularly miraculous or sign gifts ceased way back in the first century and do not and should not be uh, exercised in the church today. We'll talk about that and why I think that we should be continuationist rather than cessationist, why I think we should be charismatic in our pursuit of the spiritual gifts. But let me just leave it today as, and take it as read that I believe that's where God is leading us and what he wants for us. I talked to a, <laughs> I talked to a, a colleague of mine when I was on leave a couple of weeks ago and I said to him, you know, I'm really, I'm, for years I've been looking forward to doing this series. And I told him, you know, here's the shape of the series and what it's about. And I said to him, as a church, I really think God is, is leading us to this scripture, sacrament and spirit thing. And when I got to the last one, he was shocked. He was really shocked. And he said, don't you know what happens when you tell the church to pursue gifts of the Spirit? Don't you know what happens? Crazy stuff happens. Like normally sane people turn into freaks. And what was really interesting, when I asked him, do you believe that the gifts of the Spirit still exist today or are you a cessationist? Do you believe that they're still going? He said, yes. 
This, is, this was the bizarre thing. He said, yes, I believe they still exist. I just don't think the church should do them, which is the one position you can't hold. I've got a lot of respect for, and a lot of friends of mine are cessationists. They make a, what I think is a weak case, but a case, a coherent case, that the, the sign gifts, the miraculous gifts, don't happen anymore. And so they are logically consistent. They don't believe that they happen, and they don't pursue them. Others, like me, I hope, believe that they do exist and that we should pursue them. My only, my only regret is that we don't pursue them enough. The one thing you can't be is a, a believer that they are there and that you shouldn't pursue them. In fact, that is actually being disobedient to the Scriptures, which tell you eagerly desire spiritual gifts. But this is, this is the place that we can find ourselves in when we come up against fear. And in some sense, I resonated with where he was coming from. As someone who wants to have control, as someone who wants things to be, have a measure of predictability, as someone who likes the liturgy because at least then we know what's going to happen, to open ourselves up to a manifestation of the Spirit is to let the wind loose. And as Jesus said, you don't control the wind. He blows where he wills. Spirit is just a synonym synonym for wind. And a handy little saying came to mind, which you can apply to many, many different things. I said to him, you know, I get where you're coming from, but abuse is no excuse for disuse. Abuse is no excuse for disuse. And I'll tell you how I got him. I know that he's a big preaching guy. He's right into the word, you know, the scripture part of what we've been talking about. And so I said to him, have you ever heard a bad sermon? And he said, not only have I heard plenty of bad sermons, I have given tons of bad sermons. But according to his logic, if abuse is an excuse for disuse, then we should get rid of the sermon. I've seen it being done really badly. So it's just safer if we don't do that anymore. No one actually says that. And neither should we when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, even when they have been abused. And of course, they have been abused. And some of you come into this space this morning trying to heal from the experience of some of those abuses. And I want to say, I'm so sorry. But abuse is no excuse for disuse. The dangers when it comes to a lively exercise of the gifts of the spirits are many, and we need to know that. And when it comes to some of the more miraculous or sign gifts, when it comes to things like speaking in tongues or or words of prophecy, there is a greater propensity for abuse than even some of the other gifts. We need to know that. This danger wasn't unknown to Paul. In fact, the church in Corinth, as we said last week, was capital C crazy when it came to the gifts of the Spirit. They are what I like to call charismaniacs. Not charismatic, charismaniacs. Like they are just all in to the gifts of the Spirit. They are obsessed with the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit have become what it means to be a Christian. And then they have sort of divided Christians up into normal Christian and super spiritual super Christians. And you see that same error being made in churches today. And of course I want to avoid that. 
Paul says, not only is that an error, not only is that hurtful and abusive, not only is it dangerous, but it is destructive and it would be better if you never pursued any of the gifts if that's where they take you. So a key chapter that we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard it at every wedding that you've ever been to. But he, he starts that chapter in verse 1 to 2. He says, If I speak human or angelic tongues, that is, if I'm just talking normally or I start speaking in tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, just like those Reformed guys. And if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. So yes, there are dangers, prizing gifts over the love that we have for one another, prizing competency over character. These are, these are dangers that we must do everything we can to avoid. But the antidote to that is not to leave them aside. The antidote is given to us in chapter 14. This is what Paul says. He says, My brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in other tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. The way forward in being a charismatic or a spirit church is not to just chuck out all of the boundaries and living in the spirit is just being spontaneous and doing whatever we like. That's what Corinth did and Paul came down on them like a ton of bricks. But the alternative is no good either. The opposite alternative to just say, we're not going to do any of those things and we've got a set liturgy and that way if we just make sure we control every aspect of the service, then nothing weird will ever happen and we can control everything. Paul doesn't say that either. He goes to the charismaniacs in the church in Corinth and he says, no, no, be eager. You're probably not eager enough. Be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in other tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. And and then he just gives them all of these biblical principles which put a, a kind of a boundary around the more spontaneous and less orderly gifts of the Spirit. That's what I want to do. Next eight weeks, that's what I want to do. Exactly what he just told them to do. I don't know if you're looking at the clothes I've put on our church and are saying those three things don't go together. And I know that we've only just scratched the surface and I'm out of time and we never have enough time to plumb all of the depths of all of this, the richness of what this means to be reformed and sacramental and charismatic or to pursue scripture and sacrament and spirit. I know we can't do that here. I want to encourage you to get into small groups. I want to encourage you to to talk this out amongst yourselves, to listen to those who who think this is wrong and to listen to those who think this is all right and, and, and to talk about it together. I want you to know that I believe truly that this is where God is leading us. I want you to know that as I read the scriptures, this is what I see in the church. 
And I want you to know that I believe that when these things come together, then what we have in the church, in the church meeting and outside of it, is something beautiful and meaningful and powerful. I'll leave you with a quote, which I think says it beautifully and meaningfully and and powerfully. Andrew Wilson in Spirit and Sacrament says this, Imagine a church service that includes healing testimonies and prayers of confession, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, baptism in water and baptism in the spirit, creeds that move the soul and rhythms that move the body, Imagine young men seeing visions, old men dreaming dreams, sons and daughters prophesying, and all of them coming to the same table and then going on their way rejoicing. Can you see it? I can see it. I can see God leading us towards it. Let's pray together. Father, if any of this is true, if any of it is good, If any of it is beautiful and worth pursuing, please confirm it in our hearts now and in the days and weeks and months and years to come. I believe that for 10 and 12 and 15 years you have been shaping this church according to your word and your will. I believe that you want us to pursue these three things that in our experience maybe don't go together. I believe that you're leading us into these things. And if that's true, Lord, then I trust you to do it. And so in the spirit of the the charismatic, we say, Holy Spirit, come. Lead us. Guide us. Shape us where we have fears, where we want to seek safety. Lord, please lead us in your way. I pray for myself that I'll be able to release some of that sense of control that I want to have over everything that happens. And rather, Lord, enable me, enable us give authority over to you. Lord, I'm reminded of a word of prophecy that was given to me a few years ago. A man who said, Jonathan, you need to get out of the Holy Spirit's way. And to the extent that that's true of me and of us, I pray that we would do it. Come what may. Have your way, Lord. Have your way among us. And Father, as we move into the next eight weeks, really zeroing in on what these gifts are and what they're meant to achieve and what their purpose is and whether we can have them and what we should do to get them and all of these questions that come to mind as you guide us through these weeks, we trust you. Your word is our authority, not just to tell us what to do, but to shape us into who you want us to be. We trust you. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.